Hi, I'm Rena Ninen, and you're listening to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a new series from Foreign Policy. Before COVID, I had five homes where I did cleaning work. Since COVID came, slowly, slowly, all the homes where I worked stopped giving me work. We're starting today's episode hearing from Deepa, a domestic worker who does not have a last name. She lives in a slum area of Mohali, a city in northern India's Punjab region. She spoke to us in Hindi, so what you're hearing here is an actor's translation. Lockdown ke daran, we had so many problems because there are nine members in my family when we go to the bungalows and work for the whole month. But sometimes, when we ask them for a day off, for health reasons or any other emergency, the employers don't give days off. I don't like this part at all. Sadly, Deepa's story is a common one. According to the Institute of Social Studies Trust, only 5% of women in India are working in the formal labor force, meaning they're at a job that gets a paycheck and has taxable income. So what are the other 95% doing? Well, a good chunk are not working, or many are involved in something called informal work. Basically, under-the-table jobs like on a family farm, street vending, making clothes and domestic work, to name a few. These jobs have no social security, very few worker protections, and minimal wages. So how do you deal with this big, complicated problem that's been exacerbated by the pandemic? For Deepa, the first step toward creating change was recognizing that her predicament was systemic. I think one of the reasons for the bad economic condition of women in India is that they fear the questions society asks when a woman goes out to work. But my personal opinion is that women should go out and fight for their rights. And when women go out to work, they become more aware of what is happening around them, in their state and in their country. When we go somewhere for work, we become conscious of the fact that our salaries are able to make our ends meet. We are able to raise our children well. But there should be safety protocols for all workers, be it a day laborer or a construction worker. It was this recognition toward the beginning of the pandemic that led Deepa to join a group called the Self-Employed Women's Association, or SEVA. It has around 1.5 million members, and its mission is to empower women, informal workers, to speak up for themselves and be self-reliant. Early on, a SEVA instructor taught Deepa that one of the first steps in empowerment is taking back ownership over how her work was perceived by others. She told us, from now on, you should not go about saying that you help with cleaning work in bungalows. You should say you are domestic workers, the name Seva has given you. Seva has given me a name and an identity and also respect. This has given me self-confidence too. I used to hesitate when speaking to people. But ever since I became a SEVA member, I have gained self-confidence. I now speak freely and with a lot of confidence with our local elected leaders. All women who are domestic workers should unite so we are able to share things with each other.
While Deepa's story is moving, larger questions loom, like how effective are organizations like SEVA in bringing about change to national policy toward domestic workers? Why aren't there more safety nets for women like Deepa? And what else can be done to make sure informal work is more visible and appreciated as a vital asset to India's economy and society? These are the large systemic issues about informal work we're looking at in today's episode. We're going to speak with somebody from the World Bank who shares policy ideas for better supporting the informal sector. We'll also talk to a researcher focused on women informal workers in India and what structural reforms she thinks are most needed. But first, we turn to Harsharan Kaur, the state coordinator for SEVA in Punjab. We spoke to Harsharan online during the peak of COVID. And there's some TikTok sounds from her clock in the background. Harsharan helps us better understand how an informal workers' union actually works. They teach members how to collectively demand better pay and working conditions and lobby the government. What rights do informal workers really have? How do you educate? How do you empower them to help improve their conditions? A lot of the women will not will say they're fine, like especially if you talk to domestic workers. They'll say, oh, we're fine. We get paid. We have no issues. But then you ask them, oh, what if you take a leave? Oh, they cut up. What if you work overtime? Do you get more money? No. So getting them to understand what rights are actually out there. So like international conventions like the C-189 for domestic workers or C-190, which is for uh, violence or even the really great laws that have come into place in India for women's safety, getting them to educate them about that and letting them know what their rights are and then making them understand that they have to fight for this. They have to ask for these rights. It's just not something that is going to come to them. So just getting them to realize that if they come together, they have more power and more say in the matter. And that's when they realize that they can do something with it. What do you think the big barriers are when you look at policy and trying to get informal workers more protection? Firstly, the informal sector in India needs to be recognized as the largest contributor to the economy. And everyone needs to realize that in India, it is the street vendors and the domestic workers and the construction workers who are actually running the country and really making sure the economy grows. And there needs to be much more in terms of protective policies for them. They have absolutely no social security benefits right now for themselves as a worker. They might have them for a widow, but an old age pension, etc. But there is nothing for a worker to ensure that if they have an accident or if they get hurt at the at work, that they have something to fall back on. Beyond community organizing, the other big part of what Seva does is help women informal workers form work cooperatives. You might be familiar with a co-op, like a community supermarket. The thing that makes a co-op a co-op is that any member owns a share of the business. And for worker co-ops, this can be a really powerful thing, to own a business with others. Over 300,000 women have joined collective enterprises through SEVA. A cooperative only arises from the needs of the women. It's something that's natural and flowing. It's not something we tell them, oh, you know what's you know trending? You should do this. No, it's when the women realize, no, this is something that we want to do and this is something different. It has to have that ownership 
quality. And then it really is from the nascent stages all the way to maturity that you have to handhold and ensure that there's marketing, there's a strategy in place, there's paperwork done to ensure that they understand what their responsibilities are. That's the part that where people don't realize that all SAPA cooperatives have the women on the board. It's not us. There's only two professionals on any board. The rest is all the women themselves, and they take their decisions, and they decide how they want to run their businesses. And to bring them to that level, you have to just take the time and effort. What's the difference between starting a cooperative and just having these women get together and start their own business? There has been different movements, from the self-help group movement to other microfinance schemes, etc. But in our history, to show long-term guaranteed success, it is the structures of a cooperative that help ensure that there is one equality. Um, all the women are in it together, they're equal shareholders, and also there is a understanding of how a business is to be run. Because if they just come together and try to run a business, they might not be able to apply for certain legal tenders or whatever, if there's the government procurement process, etc. Whereas a cooperative is recognized to do those things. And if our women are trained and they understand how a business is to be run, then they can actually apply for those things. So it's just the structure of it that uh, helps it become much more successful than the others. Union organizing with women informal workers, educating women about their rights, helping them form business co-ops. I appreciated talking to Harshan Kaur about the work SEVA is doing to empower women informal workers like Deepa, who you heard at the beginning. While SEVA is working on the ground, others are trying to influence change at the governmental level in India. A big part of this is collecting data to show not only the disparity in work opportunities for women, but also the economic benefits of passing labor laws that enhance gender equality. Monica Banerjee, a research fellow at the Institute of Social Studies Trust, or ISST, has studied women and formal workers extensively in India. She hopes her research will eventually bring about policy change. Why do you think these workers are not recognized as workers? See, the moment you will recognize this large force of workers, you cannot pay them negligible uh, wages. You cannot stop them from having their social security benefits. Those are then imperative for the government to give. And therefore, it is easier to not do all of that and sway away from those. So the government keeps trying to do that. You know, it doesn't want to get into that whole thing of trying to recognize them. It, It is too much of a cost. Are there any solutions to address this? There has been some benefits that have come forward in the sense that now some states have been pushed to fix minimum wages. There was a Supreme Court uh, notice to all the states that every state has to register domestic workers. But what happens is uh, it has still not been ratified because, you know, that push is not there. There is nothing. I mean, there is certain push to a certain extent, but one has not been able to get what they want. Remember how Harsharan Kaur from SEVA was mentioning these good international labor guidelines for domestic workers, like the C-189 from the International Labor Organization? Well, that's what Monica Banerjee is talking about here. Some countries choose to ratify or formally pass these ILO conventions. There have been a number of bills in India trying to make benefits like Social Security available to domestic workers and other informal workers. None to date have passed. But Monica says... 
there has been some progress. The sexual harassment at workplace, I mean, that is, again, it recognizes informal workers. But in terms of implementation, the, the structure is so complex and most women do not even want to get into that because, you know, it will give them a bad name. How will they really go through all those processes? The headway, I would say, is that the state is now at least recognizing. Till a couple of years back, there was not even recognition that they are workers. Now, at least that the state is now pushed to recognize. But even when they recognize, they do not know how to deal with this large chunk of informal workers. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to dealing with it, they try to implement what is there in the organized sector, which doesn't work here. So there is a lot of learning that needs to happen at the state level. You know, I hear a lot about the importance of data collection. How do you think this could eventually change how we look at policy or how policy is shaped? So data is the evidence, really, to showcase what's really happening. I mean, for example, in terms of child care, uh, while the government has this huge program, how many children are really getting covered into it? And when you see the data, you see that only 26% of zero to six-year-old children are actually getting covered, even after so many years. If you do not have that kind of data, how do you kind of create an evidence to show where we are lacking. Monica, if there was one change you could make to help this informal work sector, just one thing, what would that be? (laughs) What I know how to do is constantly create evidence. And as an organization, we are constantly trying to do that because the more evidence you kind of push to the government, you know, they cannot ignore it. So one thing that at ISST we are constantly trying to do is cover COVID impact from different lenses. So we've already done in terms of livelihood. Now we are looking at childcare centers being closed. How does that impact? We are also trying to look at, you know, how it has impacted frontline workers. We are also trying to look at different other sectors, you know, tourism. How has tourism got impacted? And how about women who have been so much part of the tourism? So, you know, constantly creating evidence is the only way to work with the government, to constantly advocate the rights of these workers and constantly giving voices to these people so that what they are suffering from is reaching out. That's something that we are, we can do and we will continue to do that. Monica Banerjee, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. While we've been focusing on women in the informal sector, it's important to note that informal work in India for all genders is huge. Close to 90% of the labor force are informal workers. But this is kind of weird because India has the world's fastest growing major economy for much of the last decade. And when a country develops economically, usually the size of its formal workforce increases. But that hasn't happened in India. And like in many places with large informal workforces, a disproportionate number are women. To help us make sense of this and consider paths forward, we turn to the chief economist for South Asia at the World Bank, Hans Timmer. When you look at regulations and the tax system, what do you recommend that the informal sector does about that? You can't expect the informal sector to commit to the same kind of regulations and the same kinds of tax systems that exist in the formal sector. Uh, That exists in the formal sector in a way that cannot be applied to the whole population, that that is really organized for a small group in society. So you have to start thinking how you can organize the tax system for the informal sector, almost forgetting about the formal sector. And one interesting entry point could be the new digital economy, where increasingly the very small firms start selling their products and their services on e-commerce platforms. And with that, they become visible also. 
and they have actually an incentive to become visible because these platforms, they give them a broader market. And you can design a tax system for the people uh, that participate on those informal sector without being too harsh on those people. For the informal sector, there's no incentive to comply with the formal uh, sector regulations because they can't benefit from that in the same way. But they, they can benefit from these e-commerce platforms. And so you should start thinking on how to organize that. Mm. One would argue that the popularity of digital technologies in part is why there's so many informal workers in India. What would you say to that? Now, it's not the cause of the large informality in India, but it is true that when you look at uh, the world as a whole, not just India, uh, that uh, you see that the digital technologies, they create more informality. What used to be steady jobs increasingly become gig jobs. And, and that's for me an interesting observation because that means that the informal sector in India might have actually a comparative advantage in that new world where work is a lot more flexible and where you talk a lot more about activities instead of jobs, where you have a value change between many small entities. The way we organize production and and work and commerce is, is fundamentally changing. Hans, do you think it's a problem that there are so many informal workers in India? Yeah, in, in general, it's a problem because informality means that you don't use your full potential because with informality comes that you don't have access to, to capital. There's a low education level in the informal sector. There's not an incentive to, uh, to scale up if, if you have an opportunity to do that. So that, that is a problem, uh, not just in India, but everywhere. I, I think what in India is even more a problem, and, and that's what really should concern us, is that informality is not declining. It's stubbornly high. Even in the last two decades, where, where growth was high and you see education levels uh, going up, informality has not declined. If anything, it has increased. That's a problem. And when you try to understand why that is happening, uh, my conclusion is that you have to look at the formal sector. There's a lot of insider-outsider policies, as we call it as economists, in the formal sector. Uh, you, you have privileged workers that have very beneficial contracts in the formal sector, but they're so beneficial, you can't extend that to a big part of the population. So you have insiders that have these benefits by keeping the group very small, which means you have a lot of outsiders that don't have access to that. The same is true for big companies. They are very comfortable. They have the access to to capital. They have the political connections uh, and they like to keep it that way. And so there is a force in the formal sector that actually feels very comfortable by being privileged and being small. And so the fact that it is not changing over time means that you can't just wait till informality is being absorbed as we normally think in in development theory in India. You have to rethink this, uh, yeah. What do you think should be done about the gender gap in the informal sector in India? So many women are informal workers. Actually, not enough women are workers, whether they are formal or informal. That's the biggest problem in India. Only 20% of the women are actually part of the labor force, formal or, or informal. And most of them are still in the, in the rural areas. And it has come down over the last decade. Some 10, 15 years ago, it was more than 30%. Now it's 20%. And that's partly because less opportunities in rural areas. 
partly because still low education problems. But in my view, the main reason is a cultural one. It has to do with norms. And you can only change that when society and policymakers are really identify this as one of the top problems. And then you have to try everything that is in your toolbox to increase it, which starts with education, safety on roads, childcare, all kinds of things. But these interventions by themselves are not enough if you don't change the norms. And that has to do with the priority at the policy level, very high up. It has to do with how the division of labor in household is being organized. And if you don't change that, uh, then you will still have a huge underutilization of, of potential. When you look at everything, you know, the uphill climb that these informal workers have, what makes you optimistic about the situation in India? One, one is the new technologies which were already there, but uh, are very much accelerated as a result of this crisis, because they created uh, solutions that were needed. And I truly believe that these new technologies, they fit very well the informal sector. I also see a lot of good developments in India. Employment participation rates are going up. You see a lot of uh, very smart people working in small companies being very innovative. You see people in the service sector that are uh, very productive, uh, linking up to international markets. Uh, but there are also reasons to be cautious in, in your optimism. What you see is a much wider social divide now in India because of the crisis. It really increased inequality. It has to, a lot to do with lack of access to education and healthcare of, of a lot of people. That makes you cautious also in, in your optimism. Hans Timmer, Chief Economist for South Asia at the World Bank. Hans, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And this brings us to the subject of next week's episode, how to get better data on gender and why we all should care about it. This data actually caused a very public conversation and a reckoning about the nature of violence against women. And it raised awareness around new coping strategies and available or unavailable support services. And it directly informed new government strategies and policy responses addressing violence against women. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy and is supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. This show is hosted by me, Brina Ninen. Laura Rosbrow-Tellum is our senior producer. Andrew Perella is our editor. Rob Sachs, our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Dan Efron, Rosie Julin, and Zamone Perez. And special thanks to Fazia Yassin, Arshad Rasul Zargar, and Hannah Harris-Green. Thanks, and we'll be back in your feed next week.